Hello, everybody, and welcome to European Pharmaceutical Reviews podcast. My name is Caroline Peachy. I'm the editor of European Pharmaceutical Review, and I'll be your host today. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the potential of continuous manufacturing and process analytical technologies. And I'm thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Trish Herter, who's the CEO of Lindra Therapeutics. Continuous manufacturing is recognized industry-wide as an efficient and flexible manufacturing approach. But despite encouragement from regulators, including the US Food and Drug Administration, and the fact that it's standard in many industries, the pharmaceutical sector has been quite slow to adopt continuous manufacturing technology. In this episode, Trish will be exploring the concept of continuous manufacturing, discussing some of the benefits and challenges, including the critical role of process analytical technology. She'll also share some details of the work being undertaken at Lindra Therapeutics to embrace continuous manufacturing and look ahead at how the shifts to this technology could develop over the next decade. So, Trish, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Caroline. Nice to meet you and looking forward to our conversation. Could you just tell me a bit about your background and your current role? So I'm a chemical engineer by training. I, I grew up in South Africa, and so I did my bachelor's degree there, and then I came to America for graduate school. And I did a master's at West Virginia, actually in mechanical engineering, and then my PhD, MIT, in chemical engineering. And you know, when I was studying engineering, I remember you know doing courses in undergraduate about the advantages of continuous versus batch manufacturing. And it was sort of kind of a, a given that it was better to do things continuously because of the fact that you can be at steady state, maintain steady state, which is a, a more desirable way to manufacture, basically. So right after graduation, I actually landed up joining a paper company. And of course, paper has been made continuously since the 1700s, a really, really long time. And then around 2000, I joined the pharmaceutical industry, and I was fairly shocked to see that the pharmaceutical industry at that time anyway, used, you know, pretty, you know, it looks like giant kitchen mixes to make their batches of, of tablets, which I thought was pretty retro, to be honest. And then, you know, when I joined Vertex in 2004, we were doing a sort of a brainstorming, we call BHAG session one day, I mean, BHAG stands for Big Hairy Audacious Goals. And as the formulation group, we were brainstorming like what, what we'd like to do, what would be an amazing thing for us to achieve as a company. And as part of that, we had a BHAG that said we were going to have only continuous manufacturing of all our drug products in our own facilities. And, and that was supposed to be, again, that was in like 2005, we did that exercise and it was supposed to be like a 20 or 30 year goal. But amazingly, we actually accomplished that with the first FDA approved continuous manufacturing plant in July of 2015, which was which was pretty exciting. So that's sort of my, my journey from paper through pharmaceuticals and, and trying to help convert pharmaceuticals to what I think is the right way to manufacture. You mentioned this was in 2015. You know, what has happened since and with continuous manufacturing? So I sort of left Vertex, you know, officially retired, took early retirement because I was able to, which was a a great thing, um, in 2019 from Vertex. And, you know, I wasn't really planning to take on another full-time job, but then I was introduced to Lindra. And so Lindra is really cool because, you know, while Vertex is using continuous manufacturing, which is great, it's advanced manufacturing, they're making some amazing drugs, some of their cystic fibrosis drugs are fabulous. But at the end of the day, they were producing just regular daily pills. And we all know that people struggle to take daily pills. And so adherence is a big issue and that leads to suboptimal health outcomes. And so really the holy grail of drug delivery is to do long-acting delivery, which people like long-acting delivery, but they don't like injections or patches or implants, which up until now have been the only way to do long-acting delivery. And so Linda's coming up with this dosage form, which allows you to do long-acting delivery 
in an oral form. So you swallow a capsule and you can take your medicine, you know, once a week or once a month and have your medicine delivered consistently, which is a really great way to deliver medicine. So Lindra's using advanced manufacturing like Vertex was, but instead of making a daily pill, which has all its limitations, Lindra is actually making this advanced dosage form, which allows you to, you know, deliver medicine consistently, you know, avoiding the peaks and troughs that you get with normal daily pills and also making it easy for patients to stay adherent, thereby, you know, maximizing the health outcomes. So that was how I landed up at Lindra was I thought, well, this is sort of the next frontier is like using the advanced manufacturing, but in addition, making an advanced dosage form that can really help patients. Let's stay um, on Lindra then. Trish, could you tell us a bit more about the, the clinical stage pipeline and then onto your work, you know, what you're doing to establish a continuous manufacturing facility? Sure. Yeah. So a lead program. So at Lindra, again, our technology can be applied to almost any therapeutic area and almost any oral therapeutic. So, but we wanted to pick something which was a good place to start of a good product that would, you know, take us through the finish line and prove that it works, but with something that's really, you know, uniquely beneficial to, to that therapy. And so we picked schizophrenia because schizophrenia is a, you know, very serious disease. Patients struggle with adherence. It's really, really important to stay on therapy because if you have schizophrenia and you don't stay on therapy, you can have things like psychotic breaks and hospitalizations, which are very damaging and kind of cause a negative impact on your brain. And it's hard to recover from that. So it's a really critical patient need. So we started with oral weekly risperidone as the lead product. So while we've done sort of proof of concept studies in a number of different therapeutic areas that make sense, like cardiovascular disease and opioid use disorder and everything else, we're focusing on getting the first product of the market in schizophrenia. And so that for that particular drug, we're actually about to start phase three studies, which is really exciting, you know, probably in April. And so when I joined Linda in 2019, so if I can maybe explain what our dosage form looks like a little, it'll help to explain why we need to have fancy manufacturing to make it. So it's basically a star-shaped dosage form that folds up into a capsule. So it goes into a capsule, but when, when the capsule gets to your stomach, it opens up into the star shape and you've got these six arms attached to a core, a flexible core. And that actually stays in your stomach because the outside diameter is big enough that it doesn't go through your pylorus when you have a housekeeping wave. So the drug is actually in the arms of the star-shaped dosage form. And so as the water diffuses into the arms, the drug diffuses out. And then at the end of the week, for example, if it's a week-long dosage form, there are linkers that connect the arms to the core that soften and disintegrate, and then the whole thing dismantles and then get excreted. So that's basically how it works. But as you can imagine, this is not your average tablet. So you can't manufacture it using typical manufacturing methods like tablet presses, et cetera. So we actually use a lot of robotics and automation to do that. So that's basically why the manufacturing process is, well, interesting, but also complicated. And again, when I joined Lindra in 2019, at the time, we were assembling these dosage forms with humans and tweezers, which obviously is not a way to do it at scale. And so we started working on, you know, how do we make this more continuous and more automated? Um, and so the basic, the arms are made from extrusion, which is a continuous process inherently, so that's convenient. And then basically the assembly process, we now, instead of using humans and tweezers, we use robotics. And so basically these robots go and pick up all the little pieces and assemble it into a a puck, which helps us form the dosage form. And then that goes into a laser welder where the components all join together. And then that gets encapsulated using a special fixture that our engineers have invented. Then that goes into a capsule and the capsule gets coated. And then it looks, the patient looks like just any normal dosage form. Okay. Uh, well, fantastic. That sounds really interesting in terms of your unique dosage form. And um, Looking back, Trish, at your experience, like what do you think are the, the major considerations? Where do you start when you're looking to implement continuous manufacturing process? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, when we did it at Vertex, we basically thought about all the products we had in development. Being a small company, we couldn't afford to build 
you know, one machine for this product, one machine for this product. And then also products in development are always, you know, there's always the risk of them not making it, right? What's it like 10% of phase one products make it and 50% of phase twos and, you know, even whatever the percentages for phase three. So you can't put all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. And so at Vertex, we designed a machine that was flexible enough that it could make any product that we had in phase two development at the time that we're designing the machine. And then it turned out that it was flexible enough from sort of doing that thought exercise to then be applicable to pretty much every product that Vertex made so far anyway. And so that kind of worked pretty well. And so we took the same approach at Lindra, but we designed a machine that was flexible enough to make multiple products. So our dosage form is very modular. And so the arms, you know, the, the, the drug arms have the active component. So many of the other components stay the same from product A to product B to product C. And so we can design something that's flexible enough that the drug arm segment can be a little longer, a little shorter. You could have more active arms and more inactive arms. And all of that configuration is, is flexible so that we can accommodate multiple different products. What do you need to shift from the batch to the continuous manufacturing approach? Well, again, it depends on where you are in development. So if you make it you know, if you make a decision that you're only going to develop continuous products, then it's easier because you actually, right from the very beginning, you only develop continuous processes. But for example, with Orcambi, which was the first molecule that we did shift from, back from well, that was the first molecule that we took through the continuous process that was approved. And we had done, I think, phase one studies doing, you know, a wet granulation process. And so what we did was we converted that to a continuous wet granulation process using twin screw extrusion. And that's how we converted it from, you know, the very small scale batch to, to, a, to a continuous. But the subsequent products, once we knew we were doing continuous, we just went straight into doing it continuously from the beginning, whether that be continuous direct compression, continuous wet granulation, continuous roller compaction, which are the sort of three most common methods used for pre, prior to tableting, basically. Um, and again, talk about flexibility, the machine that we designed for Vertex was one that could do any one of those three processes, even though the lead process lined up being wet granulation, subsequent processes land up using roller compaction or direct compression. That was fine because we designed the machine that it could do any of those. What about the challenges and limitations that you faced, Trish? For the first Vertex machine, when we thought about what we thought the challenges would be, we were thinking about things like, you know, powder getting hung up or stuck or, you know, things like that. And that land up not being an issue. We worried about, you know, running at steady state and having to have online controls to bring it back to steady state. And that wasn't an issue either. It got up to steady state really quickly and stayed in steady state really well. And we just didn't have to do that. We didn't have to have these fancy feedback control loops to keep it at steady state. It just intrinsically ran in a very stable way. I think the thing that we maybe underestimated was the software and the complexity of the software, especially incorporating you know everything, all aspects of the machine, but then also the um, PAT as well, the process analytical technology. So that was a thing that took more resources, more time, more money than we anticipated. And that was really a, you know, we have our pilot scale machines right now that do what I would call discontinuous continuous operations. So in other words, we have each part of it is continuous, but then going from step A to step B, humans take the product from step A to step B because of the fact that it's not fully integrated yet. But our fully automated machine is being built right now in Germany and will be delivered later this year. And that's, you know, fully integrated. And so far it's going well. So Right now, I can't really answer your question about what the issues are because so far it's going well, so we'll keep on holding thumbs. It'll be that way. I know that people worry a lot about the regulatory stuff, and um, that was one of the reasons why, you know, especially bigger pharmaceutical companies, which tend to be a little bit more risk-averse, you know, didn't really jump in with both feet. And uh, I think that was actually one of the issues was because they didn't jump in with both feet, they kept on doing it in kind of a pilot way for, you know, testing products or retrofitting old products or products that were in development, but they would do the batch on them. 
as the main thing and do the continuous as the second, you know, as the second option or whatever. And when you don't really, you need to kind of go at it with, we're going to make this happen kind of an approach. And at Vertex, we were kind of all in. It was the only way we were doing it. And if we weren't successful, we wouldn't have gotten the product to market. So we basically, you know, went all in. And I think that's what got us there. But from, a, you know, going back to the regulatory point of view, that was one of the things that we was very worried about. We were worried about it too. But then, I mean, the FDA had said, you know, very explicitly they were interested in companies doing continuous and they'd previously encouraged companies to do quality by design. And at Vertex, again, we did quality by design for our first product. And the FDA was really great to work with, you know, very collaborative and very helpful. And so we had a really good experience doing that. And so we were confident that we would again have a good experience doing continuous manufacturing, that we could take them at their word, that they would be collaborative. And they really were very, very helpful. So I think that regulatory thing has kind of been put to rest in my mind anyway. I think there's a really interesting article. I can share it with you recently in the International Journal for Pharmaceutics, you know, written by the FDA, which is basically an audit of continuous submissions versus batch submissions and what the outcomes were. And basically the continuous manufacturing submissions had, you know, they were all approved without any issues on time or ahead of time, you know, faster than the batch processes. So basically the FDA is really putting their money where their mouth is and making sure that these um, continuous submissions, that that's not, not an issue that's going to stand in the way for companies. That sounds really interesting. So yes, please, if you could share more about that, I'm sure our listeners would be interested as well. I noticed, Trish, we've spoken a lot about the FDA. You know, internationally, um, what's the situation? What have other regulators or pharmacopeers said about continuous manufacturing? Yes, I, I talked about the FDA because obviously that being our sort of our home registry agency is the one we yeah. talk to a lot. But, um, you know, the EMA and the FDA kind of had a partnership on this whole idea of, you know, advancing continuous manufacturing and quality by design for that matter. And they had a joint task force and things like that. So the two agencies really collaborated really well on that. And once you've got EMA and FDA approval on something, then typically, you know, other regulatory agencies tend to come along. And so, for example, Health Canada was another one that we had a lot of interactions with, and they were also very supportive. And so, you know, we didn't have any issue with any global authorities. You know, that being said, again, you know, with cystic fibrosis, we were working with mostly, you know, EMA, FDA, Health Canada, and, you know, there may be some other territories that we didn't go to that you know might find this more interesting or whatever but we certainly didn't have any issue with you know all the global authorities we went to okay and um, that's that's interesting and I wanted to pick up on something else you touched on you so you spoke about process analytical technologies can you share a bit more about um you know the requirements for process analytical technologies and if there's any specific challenges related to those yeah that's kind of interesting because if you think about it you know, with an old-fashioned batch manufacturer, you could make, for example, a batch of a million tablets, and you could take six tablets out of the million and test them for dissolution. If they passed, everybody's happy with the outcome, which is sort of silly in a way that that was acceptable, but it was acceptable. And it makes some sort of sense, because as long as you sample in a sort of a random way, you know, maybe you've got a reasonable representation of the entire batch. Not really, but somewhat. Anyway, but the interesting thing was, when we started building our first continuous manufacturing process, I assumed that implementing real-time release was like another big hurdle and that maybe we wouldn't get that done in time and that maybe doing the release in a more old-fashioned batch way would be okay. But actually, the FDA was very adamantly opposed to that. They really wanted real-time monitoring. And that makes sense because if you think about, let's just say, let's say you're making cookies and continuously, of course, because that's how cookies are made, and the cookies are all popping off the line. You know, if you only sample six, then potentially there could be sort of perturbations and things like that that happened that you completely missed, Right. And that wouldn't be good. Where maybe one cookie had no chocolate chips, for example, that would be a bad thing, no active ingredient. So I understood why they wanted, you know, more, more real-time monitoring. And so it was basically an essential thing that we needed to incorporate. And so we did. 
And so even the first continuous process that we had approved, we had real-time release incorporated. And so, you know, to do that, you have all these, you know, call it the laser light show, but basically you have all the spectroscopic stuff, you know, all over your manufacturing process, you know, measuring things in real time. And then you develop models based on those real-time measurements to, to predict your, you know, end product quality. So it's it's actually, it's, it is a huge amount of work doing that, to be honest. It, it really is. It's more work than developing traditional batch methods. And in fact, you have to do the offline methods anyway to, you know, validate your online methods. And then secondly, you have to do them because on stability, you obviously have to be able to measure things you know, in an offline way as well. So that is the one, you know, aspect of continuous manufacturing that's, I think, a little bit more challenging is that you do have to put in, you know, almost sort of double the work on method development. But then at the end of the day, I mean, if you're making a bunch of batches, obviously the number of batches that are released by the real-time release is many, many more than the number of batches that go on stability. So once you have it all working, it should be, you know, less effort, but it is, it is a lot of upfront effort to get that in place. Fantastic. Thanks for sharing that. And I have to pick up, you talked about cookies. Um, what lessons or experiences can the pharmaceutical industry take from other industries like food or paper where you worked before? Yeah, I think it's actually, again, you know, it was comical about how almost everything that's, you know, think about like the amount of science that goes into making medicines like the, and, the, and the advances in science that's caused that to happen. And then if you go look at your typical old-fashioned pharmaceutical manufacturing plant, we've got these giant Kenwood mixes. You know, it's like, really? Like, you know, there's just such a huge disconnect. And even in terms of like the way we measure things, like I, when I first joined the pharmaceutical industry, I remember reviewing something where they were talking about a stability study and they were noting the color and they were literally writing yellow off white to yellow. And then, you know, somebody's measuring something six months later. And then what what that person think this is beige? I don't know. It's just very, very unscientific. Whereas... In the paper industry, for example, when you measure color, you use a spectrophotometer and you report it very accurately. And I just thought it was kind of bizarre that this very modern high-tech industry was using old-fashioned stuff. And then the, you know, been around for 300 years industry was using the modern stuff. It just seemed kind of bizarre to me. But anyway, so I think, you know, if you type in, for example, YouTube and you say, you know, how are potato chips made? You'll see a lovely video that tells you how you make Pringle potato chips. It's pretty cool. And again, it's continuous, like everything's continuous, you know, it's like, and you know, to your point, like in the food industry and every industry, it's continuous. And so I think the whole reason why pharmaceuticals didn't change over is because of the fact that people thought that regulatory was very stuck and you had to stick with, you know, these old fashioned processes. And now that the regulatory bodies have made it clear that that's not their expectation or their, or their preference, I think the pharmaceutical industry will switch over. I think, you know, the problem is that there is a lot of if you've got an existing process that's been approved by a batch process, you know, just to sort of retrofit it to a continuous process, there's got to be a good business case for doing that. You know, maybe if you're having a lot of batch failures or poor quality, or if you're making so many batches that it's, you know, the, the marginal increases in efficiency are worth it, then it may be a good business case. But if you've got a legacy product that you're only making a few batches a year, the additional effort to go back and turn that into continuous is probably just not worth it. I would argue that for new products, however, you know, to me, it makes a lot of sense to start off by doing it continuously because you can, when you are doing things continuously, one of the big advantages is, you know, again, think about your, I'm just going to say pasta making, you know. So if you're making pasta and it's like churning out the noodles and it looks a little dry, you turn up the water or whatever, it looks a little wet, you can back the water off and then you basically have perfect pasta. And once you've got the recipe right, you just keep on running that way. You don't have to change it again. Whereas if you're making things by batch mode, like every batch, you have to make an entire batch to say that was a little too much water or that was a little too much flour and make another batch. And so it's an awful lot of stuff and takes an awful lot of time. And so you can you can really, by just sort of tweaking the knobs and measuring the output, tweaking the knobs and measuring the output, you can do in one day, you can do a design of experiments where you look at multiple different process conditions, truly understand, you know, what are the important X's in my process? What are the important Y's? You know, really understand the relationship between them. 
And then you really have a great way of running because you can really pick the optimal condition to run and know that you're in a safe space where you're going to be making quality product. And you can't do that with batch. You know, it's, it's just really, really hard. I mean, I've got a bread maker, for example, that's batch. I'm never quite sure why. Sometimes the loaf turns out a little crooked and sometimes it's straight, right? But every day I make a loaf, I try changing something, but it's a very slow process because I only make one loaf a day. In fact, I only make one loaf probably every two or three days. And it's like, it can take me forever to figure out the, unravel this mystery of, of why my bread is sometimes a nice rectangular loaf and why sometimes it's crooked. So anyway, whereas if I was doing it continuously, I could figure it out really quickly because I could just change the ratios of, you know, this and that and figure out why some of those work turn out better than others. Is there like a minimum requirement, you know, because a lot of the pharmaceuticals that we're making are small batches. I mean, can they be, you know, can yeah. we leverage continuous manufacturing? Totally. I mean, like if you look at some of the, you know, we've, I've been talking mostly about drug product because, again, that's, you know, that's what we first implemented. I mean, we used it on drug substance too. And the, the drivers for doing it on drug substance are a little somewhat different. Because with drug product, you know, I would argue the big advantage for drug product is you can really understand your process space using very little API. And as we all know, API is very expensive when you're in development. So you save a lot of cost that way, but also time. Um, when it comes to API, to, make, to actually making the drug substance itself, there's additional benefits that often you can use different kinds of chemistry that you can't do in a larger batch because basically it might blow up. If you've got some exothermic reaction happening, if you're doing that at a very small scale where you're processing a few grams per minute, let's just say through a tube, that's easy to cool. You can't do that if you're processing like a thousand kilograms in a big reactor that might blow up because you can't cool it fast enough, right? So there's different chemistry you can access that may be either less expensive, higher purity, more environmentally friendly, whatever. Lots of lots of reasons. So so there's a lot of reasons why to do it, you know, on a small scale too. And so, and the same thing with you know doing the chemistry part. You know, if you're making, say, you need to make a kilogram, you can, and you're running at 100 grams a minute or whatever. You have to run for you know 10 minutes, and then when you're making tons of it, you run 24 hours a day, seven days a week. So you can have relatively small scale equipment that you're running at a you know not super fast throughput initially, and then as you need to make more, you just make it run longer. It's the same thing with the drug product. You know that you can make something that, for example, makes I think you know 20 kilograms an hour or something was the machine we built, you know, which doesn't sound like a lot. So if you're running you know, phase two study, you maybe operate for half an hour and that's enough, you know. But if you're making, you know, 20 kilograms an hour and you're running something 24-7, you can actually make quite a lot of material, so. Okay, no, that's really interesting. And also, as you said, I guess flexibility comes into it again, mm. you know, if you can tweak it for different types of products. What developments have there been recently in continuous manufacturing? You know, the, the initial machine we built was a pretty complicated machine, you know, partly because of the fact we we're trying to be super flexible and allow multiple different processes and things like that. You know, my understanding is that we're going towards looking at, you know, smaller, more flexible units that are more custom, you know, so one that just does direct compression, for example, and is, you know, much more scaled down and less expensive and less challenging to operate. But I think the other thing that's happening is that, you know, initially, if you wanted to do continuous manufacturing, the only way to do it was for you as a pharmaceutical company to figure out how to do that yourself and like build the machine. There was no way to really go and do it GMP at a contract manufacturer. Whereas now quite a few of the contract manufacturers are sort of having those capabilities in-house so that you can, as a smaller company with less investment on your side, actually go try it out at a contract manufacturing organization. Um, I think that's really the way to go. And then maybe, you know, over time, we might move towards more of the sort of, instead of taking the old fashioned batch processes and figuring out how to do that continuously, actually just starting and doing it in a different way that's more amenable to continuous processing. I mean, so for example, using injection molding or something like that, you know, something that is intrinsically a, a higher volume, you know, less expensive process to make uh, pharmaceuticals. 
Okay, fantastic. And I mean, you've had like a quite a really interesting career in this sector. What excites you still and most about continuous manufacturing? Well, I guess I'm, uh, I really love statistics and design of experiments and analyzing data. And the thing that's lovely about continuous manufacturing is there's tons of data to analyze. And so you can really learn how things are operating, what affects what, and so life isn't a mystery anymore. If you have an issue, it's not a mystery. You can actually figure out why that happened, you know? So I think that's that's the thing for me. It's just very scientific and very data-based, and I, I really like that. Final question. Um, with International Women's Day in March, um, it'd be great if you could share some personal reflections on what it's been like um, as a woman working in the pharmaceutical industry. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that one thing is it's a whole lot easier now than it was 30 or 40 years ago. So, you know, I can remember some of the things that were said to me when I was in high school or university that were very discouraging about pursuing a career in science or engineering. And I hope those kinds of things don't happen at least as much anymore as they used to. I mean, I'm sure they still happen to some extent. But I think, you know, being in the science and engineering field is an exciting place for women to be these days. But I think, you know, you have to find companies and leaders will help, help you thrive. And there are many science and engineering companies out there that are still very male dominated, which is unfortunate, but they actually are companies like Linda, where we have you know more than 50% women in the company and at every level, including the leadership and the board. So, so I would say, you know, if you're working for a company that isn't working for you or supporting you and encouraging you, they should find another company because there are companies out there that are good to work for, for women in science and engineering. And I also think, you know, you don't have to leave the workforce to have work-life balance, you know, but it's basically you got to make sure as a woman in particular, because women tend to, not to make generalizations, but women often struggle if they have children, for example, to also make time for themselves as well as they work, you know, and so they kind of tend to be, you know, work and family and then they don't do anything for themselves. And I think you sort of have to find time for all three to be a well-balanced person that, in, that enjoys life. So I think that would be my advice is make sure that you don't just do the two things, family and work, but do family work and something that you really love for yourself to make sure that you stay as a sort of a happy and contented person. Fantastic. Um, thank you. Can I ask, what's the thing for you um, that you um, like, your hobbies, Trish? I'm a big show jumper. I love horses. I'm rapidly in love with horses. So I have a ton of horses and I do show jumping, compete in show jumping for fun. So it's, it's a good thing because once you have a horse or two or three or four, you, know, you have to go out and ride. So it kind of like it gives you that compulsion to do it, whether it be six o'clock in the morning or whatever you know, go out and ride every day. And it really is a great way to start the day. And then I compete on the weekends and that's super fun. It gives me a bit of an adrenaline rush. So enjoy it. Fantastic. And what advice would you give to women looking to, you know, get to those leadership roles um, in the industry? Any top tips? Yeah, I'd say, you know, really making sure you have a good network, you know, staying in connect in touch with your network and like not, not in a, oh, I need a new job now. Let me reach out to somebody kind of way, but more as a, like, I'm happy in my job. I'm having a great time. Let me stay connected to my network kind of a way, you know, so not looking to your network when you need it, but just making it a point that you do have a great network because that's how great opportunities come up, you know, how informal mentoring from your colleagues and, and people that you admire, all those things I think are really helpful to you as you try to navigate your career. So I think those are important things to cultivate. Okay, well, unfortunately, um, that's all we've had time to discuss today. But uh, Trish, it's been really interesting. Thank you for sharing um, those insights on, on continuous manufacturing and where it could go in the future. And on behalf of European Pharmaceutical Review and Dr. Trish Herter, thanks everyone for listening. And we hope you'll join us for the next podcast.